Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast. The doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Edition is we take an in-depth look at an NFL draft prospect that many Bengals fans have already fallen in love with, even if they've never seen him play, Oregon offensive lineman Panay Sewell. And when I say in-depth look, we're talking microscopic surgery. You'll hear from Panay, his high school coach, the voice of the Oregon Ducks, an NFL draft expert, and we'll find out what the data says about Panay from one of our pals at Pro Football Focus. In short, you're about to know everything there is to know about the 20-year-old native of American Samoa, a chain of islands in the South Pacific. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since the Orcam My Me. Do you have trouble remembering names and faces? Shoot, we all do, right? In fact, I consider people who have the uncanny ability to remember names to possess a superpower right up there with flying or invisibility. Well, there's an invention called the OrCam My Me that addresses the problem. It's a tiny wearable device with a camera on it that uses facial recognition technology to instantly identify people and then sends a notification to your phone or smartwatch. Genius, right? Now, I don't have an OrCam My Me. They're still kind of pricey, but it seems like it's only a matter of time before common technology allows us to never have to say, hey, you, or how's it going, guy, ever again. Now, let's get to a guy who is very easy to identify, six foot six, 330-pound Panay Sewell. On this podcast, you're going to hear from several people talking about the highly touted offensive line prospect, but I thought we should start by hearing from Sewell himself. About a month after Joe Burrow delivered his emotional Heisman Trophy speech that helped raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight hunger, Panay Sewell, who was only 19 years old at the time, also made an emotional speech in accepting the Outland Trophy expressing his thanks to Oregon head coach Mario Cristobal, offensive line coach Alex Mirabal, and most of all, his family. To this day, it's still surreal to me that I'm standing in front of you all as the uh, Outland Trophy winner, and it's a dream come true. Thank you all for making this happen, and I'm forever grateful for those who believed in me from day one. I didn't really know much about the award until I attended uh, the University of Oregon. I uh, didn't know m- much about it, just knew that it went to the best lineman in the country. And Coach Cristobal and I have been having conversations about winning it and uh, trying to bring one to Oregon. And I, re- I will never forget, it was right before the, right after fall camp, before the season started, he looked me in the eyes and said, don't wait. Go get it this year. Well, Coach, I'm here. And I went and got it. The trust you have in me 
And the confidence you gave, him, gave to me is the reason why I'm standing here. And uh, I'm forever grateful for you. Forever thankful for the way you've treated me and my family. You're a man of your word. And uh, thank you. Coach Mirabal, man, thank you for all that film, all that film sessions, all the O-line meetings. Everything you say stick because everything you say you repeat. So uh, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Uh, it's hard to forget. But <laughs> I thank you for that because it makes me a better man and I uh, pay attention to details more. To all my teammates back in Eugene, man, thank you for pushing me to be a better man both on and off the field. Uh, creating that relationships with y'all just. And having that friendships with uh, each and every one of you just makes me want to go harder. And I don't want to let anyone down on that team because that hurts. That truly hurts. Uh, Ma, Dad, if you told me when we were in that in American Samoa, in our house, that we would be here today, I couldn't believe you. I wouldn't. You guys made steps and uh, had choices and made sacrifices for us, for each and every one of us, me, Noah, Nifa, James, and our sister Ella. I thank you guys for make, making the trip here because I remember when I didn't want to come to the States. All I, all I knew and all I wanted was in American Samoa, but I thank you guys. Ma, your smile makes me go every day, makes me go harder. And I do this all for you, all for you, Ma. The sacrifice and you just being the backbone of our family makes me want to hopefully, and if it's possible, find a woman just like her. That all this, I know you gave up for us. You had a dream of your own. You gave it up for me, Noah, Nephi, and Gabe. And all I want to do is just give it back. I want you to experience everything that we have and everything that we're going to go through. Because you should have been doing it all the same way I'm doing it. I'm going through it. I want you both to know I love you guys from the bottom of my heart. And I was still, and I'm still going to work until you guys will never have to worry about a thing no more. I promise you that. And to the Outland Committee, thank you. Thank you for making my dream possible. And thank you for having me and my family here today in, in such a great event and to be awarded to one of the most prestige awards known to mankind. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to say thank you all for coming. Thank you all for the love and support y'all give my family and I. And uh, go Ducks.
Panay was in elementary school when he, his parents, his three brothers, and his sister moved to St. George, Utah. It's in the southwest tip of the state, not far from the Arizona and Nevada borders, less than a two-hour drive from Las Vegas. Sewell attended Desert Hills High School, where he helped the Thunder win a state championship while becoming one of the top recruits in the country. I spoke to his high school coach, Carl Frankie. Carl, describe what it was like to coach Panay Sewell at the high school level. Well, for any coach that has a player of the caliber of Panay Sewell, it's an absolute dream. Uh, you have a kid that is the first to come in, first to leave, or last to leave. Uh, he works his tail off in the classroom, uh, on the football field, in the weight room, does all the little things right. Um, and then to have the ability that he has as a football player in the mind of, uh, you know, almost like a coach out there, it was it was an absolute dream uh, scenario for me to, to have somebody like Panay Sewell uh, to coach, for sure. How old was he when you met him, and do you remember your early impressions? Um, let's see. He was probably, if I had to guess, probably 12, maybe 11 or 12 years old the first time I met him. And he was just uh, a goofy kid, you know, big kid uh, for his age, obviously, uh, bigger than his other brothers at that age. And just fun-loving, goofy, um, pretty quiet, though. Uh, he, you know, it's it's funny in the, the Polynesian culture, they have uh, like a pecking order, you know, with the brothers and with the parents and everything else. And so uh, kind of knew uh, where he stood in, in line there and uh, – took some beatings i guess but it was uh it was all fun and games and uh you know just just a really good good kid but like i said fun loving kind of like how he is now you know he's just a fun loving enjoys has a passion for life and enjoys people and um that's that's kind of what i can remember from the beginning we're talking to carl frankie panay sewell's high school coach safe to assume you don't see many kids with that size and athletic ability in saint george utah no, not in St. George, Utah. Um, we're a little less than probably 90,000 people there in, in southwest Utah. And, uh, you know, the only other person besides maybe Panay is his brother Noah uh, with the size and speed and athleticism uh, with um, with what he had and what, you know, Noah played uh, quarterback for me as a sophomore. That's how athletic he was. And so um, – yeah, you don't you don't find kids the like that too often where we're from. That's for sure. Hmm. Carl, I am picturing the movie The Blind Side, where Michael Orr <laughs> at the high school level completely blocks some undersized kid right off the field. Were there amusing moments like that with Panay? Yes and no. I think, and and that was to credit uh, Panay and his play. He never played down to his opponents. So he would always just play at a high level at all times. And that was something we kind of preached to him as well. Um, Because as a kid, you can kind of get complacent because it gets sort of easy for you with the level of uh, opponents that you may come across at at the defensive end position or linebacker position that you may face uh, week in and week out. And so continuing to push Panay and challenge him week in and week out was a big thing. but, yeah, there was times where you kind of felt sorry for the <laughs> kid across the way. But at the same time, I think he knew what he was getting into. And 
I think the coaches knew what the their players were going to get into week in and week out. And, you know, it wasn't always easy. Sometimes there was a few challenges along the way. I mean, he played his whole senior year with a torn labrum, so he really only played with one arm. Hmm. Um, so that gave the other kid an, uh, at least an advantage there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there were times where, you know, I think the biggest knock on Panay from some coaches or from other people is, oh, he doesn't play anybody and this and that. And so – which isn't true. We do play some pretty good talent, and we, we'd always try to schedule uh, uh, larger classifications uh, when I was the head coach there. And so try to at least uh, get kids the exposure um, playing up levels and, uh, and even outside of the state of Utah, um, playing in uh, California and Nevada and things like that. So um, always trying to push the kids to get better, uh, give, get them the exposure they needed. But, you know, Panay did a pretty good job of always staying at that elite level uh, as much as possible and really working at his craft. Was he technically sound at that age or did he just physically overwhelm kids? I think early on it was more of a physical thing uh, until he kind of found out that, you know, as he as he gets um, in the higher levels of football that, you know, just being big and powerful wasn't just going to, you know, take care of itself, that you had to actually have technique and your hand placement and your footwork and uh, the mindset, just your, your posture and um, how he, you know, basically setting yourself up for, uh, being successful on the field. And I think our offensive line coach uh, did a really good job at that, um, just keeping him, uh, you know, working on, on things. And like I said, Panay was always the, you know, the first ones through the drill and always helping out his teammates with the drill. The thing that always impressed me about Panay was he was always looking to get better, uh, just like a sponge, just soaking it up. Uh, watching watching game film and, and watching things online and going to camps and meeting people that uh, played that position and, and just trying to just own that craft. And so he's always been just uh, fully involved and, and just delved right into it and really took to it like a duck takes the water. Um, and so I... I was always impressed with that about Panay. But, yeah, he worked at it. I mean, it didn't come easy at first. When you're a big kid like that and you're 6'5", 350 pounds in high school, you know, your weight can almost become a disadvantage at times. So he really worked at his uh, footwork and his ability to, to, uh, with his athleticism, um, even lateral movement. And, uh, you know, if I could have put an 80 number on him, he could have started a tight end for us. That's how – athletic he was uh, his junior and senior year in high school. We're talking to Carl Frankie, who was Panay Sewell's high school coach. What was recruiting like? Oh, craziness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, he had gotten offers when he was uh, a ninth grader. It was, it was crazy to see once the first uh, offer came across, they start all the dominoes started to fall. But I think it wasn't until he entered into a couple of uh, big big man camps in California and basically, you know, took took over the camp that it started to like really take from a lot of the bigger Division One uh, Power Five conferences and the schools and that. So, um, but it was you know it was fun, but it was also one of those things as a coach and as a you know as his, um, his parents trying to keep him level headed, which I think 
we all did a pretty good job of, you know, having Nick Saban on campus and Mario Cristobal and, and people of that caliber on campus. That just doesn't happen every day. And so being able to navigate through all that, the landscape of just all the recruiting is, is uh, you know, at that point for me, even it was new to me uh, because we had never had a player of that caliber come through. And so a lot of it was, you know, my, it's funny because his father, Gabe and I talk about things now. And we're like, man, we would never, we would never even discuss these things. Think about the conversations we're having nowadays. We weren't having, uh, you know, five, six years ago. And I, we just kind of laugh about it, but uh, it was, you know, fun, but also challenging. Um, but also keeping him, you know, Panay was easy. He just wanted to play football. A lot of kids get caught up in the limelight and they get caught up with all the, you know, the the Twitter stuff and the put how many offers they got. Panay wasn't all about that. Panay was about uh, just going out and doing his job as a teammate and uh, continuing to do what he, what was asked of him at home and also uh, from me as a coach and, and of his teachers at school. So um, I think he did a, a fantastic job doing that. He has three brothers who also played or are playing Division One college football. Were they raised to be football players? Um, I don't know if you actually raise a kid to be a football player. I think what dad and mom did was they took a chance – they left the island of Samoa, American Samoa, and they said, you know what, we got. We want to give our kids the best opportunities to get an education, um, and we're not going to be able to do that from this location. And, you know, they took a big leap of faith, and I think what they did was they just opened doors for their kids where they wouldn't otherwise be open uh, in order to have their kids choose what they wanted to do. I don't think they were ever forced to just do football. You know, I think that's, like I said, I think that's just came naturally to them and they really just took to it and they were really good at it. Um, but it wasn't forced upon or it wasn't like, Hey, you're going to be raised to be a football player. It was, Hey, we're going to open these doors for you that we can't do here in, in American Samoa. And we, we're going to, we're going to come to the mainland and we're going to give you opportunities and you better take advantage of these opportunities because these are great sacrifices we're making. And I think that's what the kids kind of hung their hat on. Cause even if you listen to what they post or, or when they talk to mom or dad, or they win an award, they always talk to their, about their parents first. And so you kind of know where it comes from. It is. And then, and then the beliefs, you know, in um, their religious beliefs, uh, and, and so on. So they had such a, a really good foundation. And that's the one thing I try to tell people I was so impressed with. And I'm really close with the family as well. Um, that Gabe and Arlene, both the Panay's parents did such a good job of keeping the kids grounded, but also allowing them to have opportunities. But a lot of sacrifices had to, uh, happen in order for those things to happen. And I think the kids are, um, you know, they, they, they know that. And so they really feel like they have to hold up their end of the bargain. So um, I think they've done that, you know. We're chatting with Carl Frankie, who coached Panay Sewell in high school. What do you think Panay's biggest challenge will be in making the jump to the NFL? Um, I think it's 
any challenge when you move up levels in football, right? The size, the strength, the speed. I think the speed of the game, you know, obviously. I think um, just knowing Panay, I think he just, he loves that part of it. You know, he loves the challenge, and he picks things up super quick. So I don't think, like, scheme and things like that are going to be an issue for him. I just think uh, the first, you know, first couple games, it's going to be his adrenaline's going to be pumping and um and then and then also the city he goes to you know if he goes to a big city like new york if the jets you know take him at number two say uh, and they don't go quarterback um the big city of you know of new york that's going to be completely a a different uh, culture shock to him uh, because i know panay likes small small town cities and stuff like that so um you know and Cincinnati is, is kind of more that speed if, if the uh, if uh, the Bengals end up uh, getting Panay Sewell. I think he'll fit right into that city because it's not a huge city. But he's like kind of a blue-collar guy because he just likes to work. Um, and he's not into the nightlife. He's not into all that stuff. He just, like I said, he just wants to play football and he wants to be a great teammate and he wants to be a leader in the community and um, – I think uh, I think he'll navigate greatly through that. He's got a lot of people on his side, a lot of uh, other uh, from Polynesian uh, ancestry on his side that, that have been to the show, uh, that have done it. And I think uh, you know he'll be able to lean on those people to kind of get through at least the first couple of years of being in the league. He would definitely fit in in Cincinnati if it works out that way. Here's my final question for Carl Frankie. Did you feel like you were coaching a future Anthony Munoz or, or Tony Baselli when you coached him at the high school level? I knew I was coaching someone who was special. Now, I hate comparing people. I think Panay Sewell's going to be in a, his own lane. The Anthony Munozes of the world and those of the Hall of Fame caliber, uh, I Every, they all have their own little uh, uniqueness to them. And I think Panay Sewell is going to be that unique type of player. I think he's going to basically blaze his own path. He's kind of done that um, as you know, with his family, blazing a new trail, new path. And I think he's going to continue to do that in the NFL. And, you know, I, I can, when I was coaching him, all I knew is that I was coaching someone special. But I've coached a lot of special players, and some pan out and some don't. And uh, I just, for for some reason, he just felt like to me that he was going to be the one that kind of sets the tone for that family and um, is able to do some something great. And, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> God forbid anything uh, happens from, you know, down the road in his career i think if he stays healthy i think he could play for 20 plus years and he could be yelling a, a wearing a yellow jacket a jacket at the end of the whole thing so um i think he is that special and uh, you know again as a coach you're just trying to help him and facilitate him and get him to a position where it just he's successful and um I think as a player, they, they have to take those opportunities like uh, Panay did with his parents moving into the States. Just take those opportunities and, and making the best of those opportunities and don't let them slide by. To, and uh, I'm telling you what, the Bengals are 
there at five and Panay uh, is uh, if Panay is there at five and the Bengals have that pick if they go uh, other than Panay Sewell I think they're going to miss out on on a, a high caliber uh, uh, player and a high caliber person and that's the that's what you get with Panay Sewell's not only the player but the person and uh, I think Cincinnati be blessed to have them if they can get them. Carl, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. After playing for Coach Frankie at Desert Hills, Panay was considered one of the top offensive line recruits in the country. When it came time to make his college decision, a standing room only crowd gathered at his high school and Sewell stood behind a table with four hats on it. From left to right, Utah, Oregon, Alabama, and USC. Panay then unzipped his jacket to reveal an Oregon shirt before grabbing the matching hat and flashing an Oregon O. As a true freshman, he started the season opener a month before his 18th birthday and eventually earned all-conference honors. As a sophomore, Panay was a unanimous first-team All-American, won the Outland Trophy, and helped the Ducks go 12-2 and and win the Rose Bowl. That year, he earned the highest grade for an offensive lineman in pro football focus history, as Panay did not surrender a sack in 491 pass-blocking snaps and allowed just five hurries and two hits on the quarterback. This past season, with the Pac-12 waiting until November before starting play, Sewell opted out and began training for his NFL future. Jerry Allen has been the radio voice of the Ducks for more than 30 years, meaning he saw nearly every college snap taken by the likes of Marcus Mariota, Haloti Nada, Justin Herbert, and yes, Akili Smith. Don't hold that one against him. I reached out to the 2017 Sportscaster of the Year in the state of Oregon. Jerry, you called his games for a couple of years. What stood out to you about Panay Sewell's play at Oregon? Well, I think from the get-go, Dan, he was so mature and beyond the college athlete. When he came in as a freshman, he looked like he was going to the NFL that first year. His body, his attitude, uh, his personality, his intelligence on the field, he just he looked uh, out of place. He looked like a, a man among boys. I think that's the, the thing that first struck us, and we saw that that first year. I'm glad you mentioned his physique because I was reading a story about him, and somebody described it as... He's 6'6", 330, but svelte. Is that a good description? You know, he came in at 350, 355 out of high school. So they did trim him down. Um, he, Aaron Feld is Oregon strength and conditioning uh, guru, and, and he really put together a program that allowed him to maximize his body and, and tune it. So, you know, when you watch him, you don't, he doesn't look like a big old what we call I don't want to say fat offensive lineman. Let's just say he doesn't fit that profile. He's very strong. We're talking to Jerry Allen, the voice of the Oregon Ducks. This might be hard for an offensive lineman, but were there any games or any plays that stood out in particular with Panay? You know, he was so steady at what he did. I think if I was going to think about something he accomplished, it wouldn't be a play or a game, but maybe a season. I, he he would 929 snaps as a left tackle and never allowed a sack. Um, I think he had one penalty in a season and a half as an offensive lineman. 
how do you not get caught holding? So I, I think his intelligence on the field, um, knowing the game so well, along with that physique and body that he has is, is um, yeah, you can't pick out one play. Understandable for an offensive lineman. Certainly Jerry, did you have much interaction with him and uh, did you get much of a sense of his personality? He is, um, I'm a, I don't want to say a typical Polynesian, but sort of that because they are so friendly. They are so family and they make you feel that way. Um, the, the last guy that I remember that was his size and uh, this scared you to look up at him, but was a teddy bear was Haloti Nada. Um, you know, he was he, out of the same mold and they both came from Utah, the state of Utah. Um, but he's just, uh, he's a gentleman. Uh, he, I don't remember ever seeing him celebrate on the field after a pancake block or after something he did. He, he was very workmanlike and, and, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's almost too good of a story because maybe you want a little flamboyant meanness in there, but he <laughs> doesn't seem to have that. Like a lot of teams at the college level, Oregon throws a lot of quick passes, a lot of screens. There's certainly nothing unusual about that, but is it fair to wonder how Panay will translate to having to uh, handle pass protection on longer developing NFL plays. You know, that's something to be seen. We think he can. When I talked to Alex Mirabal, his offensive line coach, and Mario Cristobal, they think he translates extremely well to the NFL. He has really great feet, great hands. I think that's why he was able to protect so well and not get penalties. Uh, he, he, he stays where he needs to be, understands. Uh, I did notice one thing about him. He's able to get off blocks uh, and get downfield and, and maybe make another block. He moves pretty well for a big guy, and I think that's why some people might say he seems kind of svelte because he does move pretty well for an offensive lineman. Jerry, you've been doing the Oregon games for more than 30 years, so you've seen some tremendous players, including a Heisman Trophy winner, Marcus Mariota. Is Panay Sewell up there among the very best you ever saw? I think he is certainly the best offensive lineman Oregon has had in my tenure. Gary Zimmerman was there uh, back years ago. I used to watch Gary play as a fan, uh, and he was a tremendous, tremendous uh, lineman. But, yeah, he's up there. I think it was interesting. Before the season started, there were many of us on the West Coast, maybe a few on the East Coast that were saying, uh, could he be the first offensive lineman to be invited to New York for the Heisman? That's, that's what people were thinking of him. Before we continue with our in-depth look at Panay Sewell, we remind you that the Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. It's light and refreshing with a hint of fruit flavor. Admittedly, Panay's high school coach and the Oregon radio voice weren't likely to say negative things about him. In the final two interviews on this podcast, we get a couple of unbiased opinions. Up first, NFL Network draft expert Daniel Jeremiah. In his latest mock draft, Daniel has the Bengals selecting Sewell with the fifth overall pick. But on his list of the top 50 prospects, he has Northwestern's Rashawn Slater ranked as his top offensive lineman and the number seven prospect overall, while he ranks Sewell as the second best O-lineman and the number nine prospect overall. I recently took part in a Zoom call with Jeremiah, where he discussed this year's draft with reporters from around the country. Hey, DJ, last year, there are a lot of left tackles that were kind of plug-and-play guys who played at a very high level. Compared to this year's class, where are they and who's the top guy? Yeah, that's a great question. I, to me, when I look at last year's group, I think it's, it's better than this year's group. Um, there might be some difference of opinion there, but 
You know, I, I had uh, Mackay, Mackay Becton last year. I had a, a huge grade on him. You look at Jedrick Wills, um, and then you look at Worfs. Um, and then I had uh, Georgia Kid was my fourth one, but um, who went to the Giants. So to me, when I stack up this class, I, I actually have Rashawn Slater as the top tackle in the draft. And he, now I just mentioned a little bit earlier, his arms came in at 33 inches today, which is it's not great, but it's it, to me it's good enough that he can hold up a tackle. Um, and he's just such a clean, clean player on tape. You know, you go back and watch him at Northwestern against Chase Young in 2019, and he, he more than held his own. His ability to recover and rework his hands in that game was really good. He can bend. Um, he's he's one of the better guys, and even comparing him to the group last year, if you look at just the ability to climb up to the second level in the run game and what he can do with his athleticism, I'd say he does that better than even the tackles in last year's draft. Um, but he would be my top one this year. Uh, Panay Sewell is right there behind him. They're very close. You know, Sewell is just, he's a massive dude who's really, it's interesting because he's very explosive when you watch him at Oregon in, uh, in 2019. He's explosive, but he still needs to add some strength. Um, so in other words, you see him just, just drive off the ball. You'll see, man, he's quick. Um, he's dynamic with, with how quick he can get out of his stance. He covers up speed rushers, no problem. Um, but in pass protection, sometimes you'll see guys kind of tug and pull him and and move him around a little bit. which just needs to get a little bit stronger. But I mean, he was playing as you know, he's a young kid um, at, at that point in time. So um, he's got a lot of upside. But if I was going to look at it from last year, I would take Becton, Wills, and Wirfs um, over you know the top two guys in this year's draft class. But I think all five of those guys are are really good players. And uh, last year I had Wirfs as the number three guy, and he ended up playing better than everybody else. So um, that speaks to uh, to just how good that group was last year. Hey, DJ Dan Horden, Cincinnati. You are a bit of an outlier in ranking Slater over Sewell, uh, but you do say that Sewell has the most upside of those guys. What is his ceiling and what is his floor? And if either of those guys is available at number five, should Cincinnati pounce? Yeah, I think either one of them would be great, uh, would, would fit really well in there. And I, look, I, I have Slater over Sewell. I think he's more consistent. I, I think I know um, exactly where he is, but you mentioned it. Sewell's got more upside. He's just bigger. Um, he's a more powerful guy. Um, and when you look at kind of the makeup of the offensive line there in Cincinnati, I think you can make an argument for Sewell uh, ahead of Slater just, just because of that. Um, in terms of his upside, no, I, I think he's got a chance to be a really, really good player. I, I've been around, you know, I've been spoiled. I've been around Jonathan Ogden. I've been around Joe Thomas. I've been around Jason Peters. I, I don't I don't put him in that group. I don't think he's, you know, has a chance to get to that level, even though he's a really young kid. Um, but I think he's got a chance to to grow into being a – both these guys, I think, got a chance to be, you know, perennial Pro Bowl players. Um, and Slater might end up having to kick inside. So – that's a that's a great debate to have inside the building. I just know when I put my list together and you kind of put the positives and the negatives down with Slater, I just don't there's not much negative to put down on the paper. I just don't see anything uh, that, that really concerns me. I think he's just going to be a really, really good player. As I mentioned earlier, even though he personally ranks Slater over Sewell, in his latest mock draft, Daniel Jeremiah has the Bengals selecting Panay with the fifth overall pick and has Slater going to the 49ers at number 12. At Pro Football Focus, seven different analysts, or in one case a pair of analysts, are coming out with mock drafts. A new one drops every week. 
Right now, three of the mocks have the Bengals selecting Panay Sewell. The other four have Cincinnati picking LSU wide receiver Jamar Chase. Austin Gale is among the PFF analysts who has Sewell coming to Cincinnati. Austin, based on the PFF data, how good was Panay Sewell in his two years at Oregon? I mean, I would argue that Panay Sewell, what he did at 18, 19 years old at the University of Oregon is honestly the best performance from an offensive tackle we've ever seen when you factor in age. He isn't the best or highest graded offensive tackle we've ever seen, but you know, age matters. And it's not so much that you're drafting a young player and he has more years in the NFL. It's because it is very difficult at the collegiate level to be very good at 18, 19 years old, because a lot of these other guys have that natural maturation about them. Like if you are 23, 24 years old, you are more developed than these kids coming out of high school. And to see what he did at 18, 19 years old at Oregon, highest percentage of positively graded blocks we've ever seen in a single season from any offensive tackle since 2014 in 2019 before he opted out. He's also excellent in pass protection. And still, in my opinion, this doesn't get brought up enough, still very raw. Like his technique can improve. His, you know, his hand placement can improve. His footwork can improve. And that's scary. That is scary how much you, it, it can, can improve. I was talking to Bucky Brooks of NFL Media recently. He talked a lot about all the scouts in the NFL, or a lot of scouts talk about a phrase, you grade the flashes. You grade the high end. The low end in his game, you have to get that out of his game. But you need to see the high end. And there isn't an offensive tackle in this class. There isn't an offensive tackle we've seen in the last five years where there's better high end on there, that tape than Panay Sewell. Can he get better? Absolutely. Is he perfect right now? Not a chance. But you're drafting him for what you saw in the high end. You're drafting him because you know you can mold this guy into a 10, 15-year stalwart piece of your team. We're talking to Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus. According to PFF, he didn't give up a sack in 491 pass blocking opportunities as a sophomore, one sack and 215 pass blocking opportunities as a freshman. I want to draft the guy that had the sack, whoever that was. But here's something else that caught my eye. Quote, he led the nation in big-time blocks with 13. What is a big-time block, according to PFF? Yeah, big time, you know, that like kind of modifier is used a lot at PFF. And that's anytime you see like big time throws, big time blocks, that's when, because PFF grades every single player on every single play from negative two to positive two at 0.5 increments, you have plays where a player will get a 1.0 grade, a 1.5 and a 2.0. You obviously have like the majority positives are 0.5s, but when you get to a 1.0, 1.5, 2.0, those are extraordinary plays. Those are above, way above average plays. So, so those 13 blocks, those are big time blocks. When you have a, you have a grade of a one, 1.5, 2.0, that's when you're pancaking a guy. That's when you're driving him into the dirt. That's when you're picking up two blocks when your responsibility is one. You get 0.5s when you do your assignment well. You get 1.0s, 1.5s, 2.0s when you go above and beyond expectations, significantly above expectation. An, another stat we have is big time throws. You know, right now, if you hit a five-yard slant, oftentimes it's a 0.5 or something. It's depending on how far the you know, throw is. Is it beyond the sticks? But if you hit a guy in stride deep down the field, 20, 30 yards downfield, or hit a guy in tight windows and those types of things, that's when you get to these big-time throws down the football field that lead to bigger plays. It, it really speaks to, again, the flashes, the high end in Panay Sewell's game. This is a guy that has all the high end in the world as a screen blocker, run blocker and in pass protection he's kept a clean sheet like you said in pass protection only one sack allowed in two years I mean 
And I, I think the biggest knock on Panay Sewell, and we'll probably get into this as well, is that you don't face a lot of top-tier talent in the Pac-12, specifically at edge defender. There's some, Bradley and I, Joe Tryon, some guys there in the Pac-12 that did give him some trouble, but you don't see a lot of top competition. But you can only play the cards you're dealt. You can only block the guys on your schedule. You can't discredit him too much for that. I do think he has all the tools, all the traits to be really good against top-tier competition in the NFL. He opted out last year. He was hardly the only guy to do that. But is that a knock? The only reason it would be a knock, it's not his decision. I think a lot of people bring up the opt-outs and think about, you know, he didn't want to play football. All that stuff is garbage. If you didn't want to play this past year because you didn't want to get literally a pandemic disease, that is totally understandable. Especially I've talked to guys that have opted out where their moms are nurses. They have siblings that are, you know, in ICU for different terminal illnesses. Like it makes sense. Like do not knock a kid in this class that opted out due to personal reasons. The only con is that you just haven't seen more of them play. You know, like, it, it, I mean, when you're evaluating talent, you know, especially for the draft, nine times out of 10, the most important year is your last one. And we didn't get, we didn't get to see Panay Sewell's last one. You know, Joe Burrow doesn't have his last season. I don't know if he even gets drafted inside the top 50, top 100, because it's your last year. You're, you're most matured, most developed, most experienced, this is when you need to turn it on. And we didn't get to really see that from Panay Sewell. Fortunately for him, he's an absolute freak of nature that was in outstanding at 19 years old. But you have to think about some of the other guys that opted out that maybe didn't have that type of season in 2019. That's where you're going to start to see concern. You didn't, you know, a good example is the name I mentioned, Joe Tryon of Washington. Wasn't spectacular along the edge for Washington, has some freaky tools, has some really good traits, but you never see him really do it at a high level and then obviously opted out of the 2020 season. Those are the prospects where I think they got hurt more. But when you look at Panay Sewell, Micah Parsons, Jamar Chase, these guys, Rashawn Slater, you knew these guys were good. They've already put good tape on, you know, they've already put some good things on film. Panay Sewell is in that category more than he is the other. We're talking to Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus. If you love the NFL, you should be following him on Twitter at PFF underscore Austin Gale, and the last name is spelled G-A-Y-L-E. Austin, in recent years, we've all heard that college spread offenses have made it hard to project offensive line prospects to the NFL. How about PFF data? Have the guys that you have projected panned out based on their college numbers? Yes. No, in short, very much so. At PFF, there's a lot of metrics that we track, a lot of grades that we do, and not all of them are super predictive going from college to the NFL. But what we do have a lot of faith in is our passing grades, especially from a clean pocket, our accuracy grade and our accuracy charting that we do, and pass blocking, run blocking, pass rushing grades. Those in the trenches are very, very predictive year over year. Also, athleticism matters, you know, traits matter, all those things. But if PFF had one thing that really does translate to from college to the NFL, it is the trench grades, pass blocking, run blocking, pass rushing, run defense, those have predictive power, especially when you see players going against top level competition and grading really well. If you have a high pass blocking grade in the SEC, in the Big Ten, or even the Pac-12, it's going to show up in the NFL. Where you start to see some of those non-predictive is when you're playing cupcake competition in a group of five. You can only play the players on your schedule and you're grading really well for it. But if you never see any NFL competition, that's where we strongly encourage guys to go to the senior bowl and try and get some one-on-ones on tape against top tier competition. So I do think that our pass blocking grades have a lot of predictive power. It's not the end all be all. If they were, I probably wouldn't be working at PFF, probably in the NFL, but I do think (laughs) that they have a lot of predictive power. And we've seen guys like Tristan Wurfs, Andrew Thomas, 
you know, even Makai Becton, guys that have graded well at PFF get drafted very, very highly and have immediate success. I am not surprised at how well Tristan Wirfs has done. He's the outlier. You rarely see Tristan Wirfs or an offensive tackle as a rookie do as well as he did, but I think that's the type of impact Panay Sewell can have. He is that good. He is that freaky of an athlete and that productive at the collegiate level. How much better is Panay Sewell than the rest of the pack at tackle in this year's class? So some people see it closer than I do. I think he's significantly better. I think he's the only offensive tackle prospect worth that number five overall pick. And I know some have had Northwestern's Rashawn Slater mocked to the Cincinnati Bengals at five. And while that is a moderate reach, I, I don't necessarily would rule it as an, out as an option. You know, player evaluation for the draft is, 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 an, is a moving process. It's very difficult to like definitively say one player is better than the other. It depends on the scheme that you're running, the development you're going to pay to this kid, what he needs to improve, what coaching staff you have and the skills that they have to improve players. Say you have a coaching staff that can't improve Panay Sewell's technique, doesn't have that skill set. Rashawn Slater is probably the most technically sound offensive tackle in this class. He is an absolute technical marvel and you see that in his game. Short arms, maybe better projects as a guard, really good feet and still needs to build up from a play strength perspective. Can your guys coach that up? Maybe. If not, Panay Sewell, a guy that you can coach up technique-wise, maybe is your option. It's definitely, it's not so black and white as sometimes, like, I think content and media can make it, where, like, this tackle is better than this tackle, and you take this tackle every time. It's, it's kind of like, your, you know, what flavor are you looking for, especially at the receiver position? You know, there's so many different types of receivers that you want. If you want an absolute bully, you go Jamar Chase. If you want a pure route runner, you go Devontae Smith. If you want speed, Jalen Waddle. It's so hard to say he's better than him. He's better than him. It depends on the system. It depends on usage. It depends on development, all of those things. I think there's a pretty big gap between Panay Sewell and Rashawn Slater from a pure talent perspective, but both guys could have a ton of success year one. Rashawn Slater could grade better year one, depending on the system he's putting in those things. But I will say right now, I think Panay Sewell is the best then Rashawn Slater. And then after that, I do think it starts to get even a bigger tier drop, drop off to Darisaw of Virginia tech, um, Dylan Radins of North Dakota state, Alex Leatherwood, Alabama, Jalen Mayfield, Michigan. Like there's a lot of good off of the tackle prospects there, but none are like Slater and Sewell. And I think they're in tears of themselves. All right. You referenced the wide receivers. That's the perfect segue to my final question for Austin Gale from pro football focus. I've talked to your colleagues. Uh, Anthony Tresh was a guest on this podcast a few weeks ago, and he made the case that yes, Panay Sewell is the best offensive lineman in the draft. Wouldn't necessarily be bad in his opinion if the Bengals drafted him number five overall, but he says, and others of your colleagues have said that the value of a number one wide receiver like a Jamar Chase or a Devontae Smith is greater than the value of a great tackle. Where do you stand on that debate? So I, I definitely agree with him from a value perspective. I think if you can get a true number one wide receiver, it can have a more a bigger impact on your offense and a bigger impact on your win probability than an offensive tackle. Because, you know, Sam and Steve say this all the time. Sam Monson and Steve Palazzolo, who hosts the PFF NFL podcast, and have been at PFF since I was like a kid. You know, these guys say it all the time and that you don't need to be elite along the offensive line. You just need to be good. You, you don't have to have you know, Jonathan Ogden, Marshall Yonda in his prime, Nick Mangold, like these elite offensive linemen to be a good offense, a great offense. I mean, the Kansas City Chiefs went to the Super Bowl with backups at tackle, you know? And lost. And lost, and lost. <laughs> but they, I mean, they were one of the more successful teams in the NFL this past year and, and don't have great offensive linemen. Like Eric Fisher is average to above average. Mitchell Schwartz 
is, is above average, one of the better right tackles in the league. But along the interior offensive line, you'd be hard-pressed to know all three of those guys. Like, they don't have a ton of offensive line talent. The reason for that is they have the best quarterback in the NFL. I'd argue the best receiver in the NFL in Tyreek Hill and the best tight end in the NFL in Travis Kelsey. Getting elite at those positions is more important than getting elite at offensive line. It's a big reason why an elite offensive tackle versus an elite receiver, maybe it makes more sense to go receiver. But my counterargument is I'm more confident in Panay Sewell being elite than I am Jamar Chase, Devontae Smith, or Jalen Waddle being elite true number ones. I think they're all fantastic. I think Jamar Chase is one of the better receiver prospects we've seen. But I am more confident in my projection of Panay Sewell than I am confident in Jamar Chase. Both are really good. Panay Sewell, I think, is the number three or number four player on PFF's board. Jamar Chase is like six. You know, like both these players are really good. You're splitting hairs at this point. But I like Panay Sewell over any of the receivers in this class if you're staying put at five and he's on the board. Do you think he will be? I ultimately think he does. I can't imagine the New York Jets not going after a quarterback in this class. And if they do trade down, I think they're more looking at um, Kyle Pitts of Florida. That's from what I've heard. And as for the Miami Dolphins, they've invested a ton of resource in the offensive line. Austin, Austin Jackson, you know, Solomon, Kinley, Robert Hunt, like they've already spent a good amount of draft capital on offensive line while they still need to get better there. I think they'll look at it as revisionist history and say, we can't keep doing offensive line when we have to go somewhere else. I also think they could trade out of that pick for a team looking to come up for a quarterback like Carolina, like Denver, like San Francisco. So ultimately I think you see three or four quarterbacks go in the top four picks and then Penesul is on the board. I think it's going to be a, a decision between Penesul, Jamar Chase for, uh, and Kyle Pitts for the Cincinnati Bengals at five. All right. Austin Gale has been our guest Fill folks in on some of the stuff you're working on and where they can see and hear your work. Yeah, absolutely. Go to pff.com first and foremost. We're doing a ton of good work there. We're covering the draft, obviously covering free agency in detail in March. And check out my podcast, Two for One Drafts. You can find that wherever you find your podcast. We talk NFL draft and rookies year round. It's a ton of fun. Me and my co-host, Mike Renner, definitely check it out. You obviously know your stuff. Appreciate your time as always, Austin. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. And there it is, everything you ever wanted to know about Panay Sewell, aside from whether he'll eventually wear a Bengals uniform. We won't know that until April 29th. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.